think about the subject of forgiveness, it's probably reasonable to say that for most of us when we think of forgiveness, we think of what we need to show to somebody, perhaps not so much about our need of forgiveness being shown to us from God. And you can go right through the Bible from cover to cover and forgiveness is one of the major themes of the Bible. It's quite clear in the Bible that without forgiveness, we have no hope of eternal life. Our objectives tonight are quite simple. We want to try and do two things in the course of the next 45 minutes or so. We want to look at what the popular teachings are on forgiveness and then spend the remainder of the night looking at Bible teaching, teachings on forgiveness. Now our title um, tonight presupposes that we all have a need of forgiveness. And so we want to spend a little bit of time, uh, first up, just seeing what the Bible has to say about our need of forgiveness and how in fact we all have a desperate need of forgiveness. So let's consider a couple of quotes. This first one, we're going to take one from the Old Testament and one from the New. and We'll see there's a good reason why we've chosen to do that. But I'd like you to think about this passage, which is from Psalm 14. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside, said God. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Now, if you've never read words like that before, we can understand you might find them very confronting because really what we're reading there is, is God's estimate of all mankind before they come to an understanding of him and respond to him. He says, There is none that doeth good, no, not one. So that, that really summarises all of mankind. There are no exceptions except for the Lord Jesus Christ, who we'll talk about later. So that's from the Old Testament, as I said. Now let's think about this passage from the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3, For we have before charged or reached the verdict that both Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles being non-Jews, that both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. In other words, that they are all, um, if you like, uh, subject to sin and are um, sinful in their way of life. Now it's interesting to note that the Apostle Paul in the following, in the verses that follow verse 9 quotes from the previous quote that we looked at in the Psalms. And so the reason why I'm pointing that out to you is this, that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament it's very clear that we have a need of forgiveness and they are consistent. And we emphasise that and underline that because sometimes it's said, well, the God of the Old Testament is different to the God of the New Testament. What these two passages are showing us is that there is harmony. Whether we look at the old or the new, God's estimation of mankind is the same. So our next logical question could be, well, okay, if we recognise we have a need of forgiveness, then how is that need fulfilled? That's a reasonable question to ask. 
And before we consider what the Bible has to say, what we're going to do is spend some time, as we said earlier, looking at what the popular teachings are on that, on that question. And we're going to look in particular at this book, which is titled, What's So Amazing About Grace? It's a book that's readily available in Christian bookshops. And the reason why we've chosen this book is um, to look at as... Um, is, is for two reasons. Firstly, it's representative of, of most Christian writings on the subject of, um, of forgiveness. And secondly, it's very popular. This particular book has sold over 15 million copies. So we're going to look at some of the points in this book, four points altogether, that the, the author makes, and then we're going to go and compare them with what the Bible says. So have a think about this point to start with. The author says, and the author is Mr. Philip Yancey, grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us less, no amount of racism or pride or pornography or adultery or even murder. Now, they're not my words. They're the words of the author on page 70. That's an exact quotation from what Mr. Yancey says. There's nothing we can do to affect the extent to which God loves us one way or the other. He goes on to say, and he's uh, on page 70, he actually quotes someone else but endorses what they say, that God's forgiveness is unconditional. doesn't matter what we do. There's nothing we can do that would stand in the way of God's forgiveness. The title of the book is What's So Amazing About Grace? And we're going to see later that the two are intimately linked. We might just say for the time being that grace is the, is the element of God's character that, that expresses itself in showing forgiveness. So the two words, grace and forgiveness, are closely tied together. So he says, there's nothing we can do that can put a barrier to God's forgiveness. He says on page 184, Christ accepts us as we are. That's a pretty bold statement. And finally, repentance is the moment that a person chooses to receive God's grace. So it's not so much about repentance uh, involving a change. It's just a point in time where a person says, I accept God's grace. So we're going to look at those four points now in comparison to the Bible. So our first slide is going to be to, to look at the question, is there anything that we can do, or sorry, does God accept us as we are? That statement is made on page 184. So let's look at that from a biblical point of view. Proverbs chapter 6. These six things does God hate, yea, Seven are an abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Those two things that are highlighted on that slide are the very things that Mr Yancey mentioned in his statement. You remember he said, there's nothing that can be a barrier to forgiveness, pride or murder. Well, Proverbs says, a proud look and hands that shed innocent blood 
are an abomination to God. They're, they're things that he hates. And so I'd ask you the question, is it possible for God to forgive someone who is practising those things when God says he hates them? What about this from this passage from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 6? But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Saints just simply means um, people who are called out of the world to an understanding of God's ways. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking, neither jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. And I'd like you to note these words in blue. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of those immoral things, because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. You know, the word fornication that we've got highlighted there and the word uh, the word whoremonger are in the Greek language which the Bible the New Testament was written in in the Greek they are related to the word from which we get pornography it was one of those words that Mr Yancey mentioned there's no amount of pornography he says that can get in the way of our forgiveness or God's grace what Paul says, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians says, but fornication and being a whoremonger are things that will be a bar to you entering the kingdom of God. And it goes without saying, if you have no hope of being part of God's future, then you haven't been forgiven. Well, conversely, there are things which we need to do to abide in God's love. They're things which can um, make God love us less, if you like, to use Mr Yancey's language. But there are also things that we need to do, says the Bible, if we are to abide in God's love. And let's consider a couple of those. Once again, the words of the Apostle Paul, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And what I've done in these passages that I'm putting up before you, I've highlighted the, the words or the actions that God expects us to take to abide in his love. Here's another. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. And so I'd ask you the question, is it possible to keep God's commandments if we don't know them? Of course it's not. So what this is saying is we can't abide in God's love if we are ignorant, as much as we might like to think otherwise. This is Christ, these are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 15. If ye keep my commandments, then you will abide in my love. This time from the Apostle James. He encourages us to draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, 
and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. There's a, a bit of a warmth in that verse, isn't there? What this is showing, saying is that God doesn't just set a bar and say, well, this is the bar that you have to jump over. Yes, he does have a mark of righteousness, but what he's saying is, if you draw near to me and, and you try and live according to godly principles, I will draw near to you. So there is a response by God to what we do. And finally, from Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul again says, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And the, the idea of the word repent in the Bible means not just to be remorseful or to be regretful. There is actually a separate word for that in the Greek language. This word means to change your way of life. So Paul says God's called upon everyone to change their way of life, to repent. And why? Because he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. And he's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is, if we can do anything and still be forgiven, then why does the Bible say there's going to be a time of judgment? What's the judgment going to be about if, if we've already been forgiven? It doesn't make sense, does it? So the next point we want to talk about of those that were mentioned in Mr Yancey's book is about whether grace is conditional. Consider these passages and I want you to notice what the first three have in common. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 says, by whom, and he's speaking of Christ, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. So what he's saying is, the grounds upon which you've received grace are that you've shown faith. In the following verse he says, by whom we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Again, the Apostle Paul, Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's pretty apparent what those three passages have in common, isn't it? Faith is the basis upon which God extends grace. Yes, there is something that is required of us to demonstrate faith. Now, we're going to talk a bit later about what what that means to demonstrate faith but suffice for now that we have to do something grace is not unconditional and finally from Hebrews chapter 12 follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God now that's a a useful and interesting verse. What Paul is saying there is it's possible to fall short of the grace of God. It has its conditions. It's possible for a person to, to put themselves outside the pale of God's grace. 
and hence his forgiveness. Well, what about forgiveness itself? We've looked at grace, but what does the Bible say about forgiveness? This time from the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. If my people, and these words, by the way, were in response to a prayer by one of the kings of Israel that God would forgive his people if they were to sin against him as a nation. And so he says, God's response to the king is, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and note this, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. In Acts chapter 3, when the apostles were preaching to a large crowd that was gathered together in Jerusalem, the apostles explained that what they had done was crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. They were responsible for that. And they were pricked in their heart and they said, what shall we do? And the apostles' response was, repent. It's the same idea as the word repent we looked at before, to change your way of life. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out which is another way of saying that you might be forgiven. In the first epistle of John we read, and I don't apologise for putting up a number of passages here because the idea in, in most Christian writings is that forgiveness is unconditional. It's important that we understand that that is not consistent with Bible teaching. John says, if we forgive our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So confession of sins is a prerequisite to receiving forgiveness of sins. So we might ask the question, where did Mr Yancey go wrong? Now, I might just point out that in the, in the preface in his book, he says, I'd like to thank the Apostle Paul for writing the book of Romans in the Bible because I've got everything I understand about forgiveness comes from the Apostle's writings in the book of Romans. So I make that point simply because the book, What's So Amazing About Grace, is not just you know um, a profane work off the top of his head. It purports to be... A, an exposition or a treatise on forgiveness as it's contained in the Bible. So how is it possible for him to read the book of Romans and to come to such a very different conclusion to what the Bible says? Well, fundamentally, it all has to do with the character of God. You see, if we don't understand the character of God, we can't possibly understand forgiveness and there's a passage in the Old Testament which I think really summarises very succinctly the God of the Bible and the attributes of his character that are very relevant when we come to thinking about the subject of forgiveness. And here it is. Isaiah 45 and verse 21, where God says that I am a just God and a saviour. 
Now, can you see in that very brief passage two aspects of God's character? What it means is that, yes, God saves, but he will always do it in a way that is consistent with his justice or, if you like, his righteousness. Other parallel terms that the Bible uses to describe these, you might call them two aspects of God's character, are his grace and his truth. And so just as those two qualities are found in God's character, so they are in the Lord Jesus Christ. We read that the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. God could theoretically ignore all sin and forgive indiscriminately. He could save men regardless of their morality, but he doesn't because of what he is. He is a just God and a saviour. There are two elements to God's character. And sadly, that is the point that is not understood by most Christian writers. They see God as a saviour, but forget and overlook the fact that he is also a just God. He will only save in a way that is consistent with his righteousness or his justice. And we're going to see in the second half of our talk tonight just how he does that. So failure to understand God's character leads to misconceptions and we're going to consider two of those misconceptions now. One of the points that Mr Yancey makes in his book is this, that God loves sinners regardless of, of anything. He will always love sinners. And to substantiate that idea, he will allude to passages such as this, where the Apostle Paul says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, if you read that passage on the surface, it sounds like it's saying, well, we were sinners, God loved us. If we remain sinners, God loves us. But that's not what the Bible says. And often when we read passages like this, or often when passages are used by others, what we need to do is actually just read around the verse itself and look at the context and what it says either side of the verse. And that's what we're going to do now. If we look at the very next verse, it says this, Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not going to go into the details of what it means by to be saved um, or to be justified by his blood right now. We will look at that in a few moments. But all I want you to do is to note that God says, while mankind was sinners, I did something. I provided an opportunity, an opportunity for them to be saved. And that opportunity was to send my son to effect that forgiveness. That as a result, they might be saved from wrath. We might ask the question, well, what's Paul talking about? What wrath is he talking about? Well, let him answer for himself. He says in chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness 
and unrighteousness of men who hold, and the word there means to, to hold down or suppress, the truth in unrighteousness. So what, what's this saying then when we wrap that up? It's saying, well, Mr Yancey would say, if we're sinners before and after, we'll still be recipients of God's love. What Paul says is that God's done something when we were sinners to help us. But he doesn't want us to remain in that state. There's something we've got to do. And to use an analogy, God called us when we had muddy boots. But there comes a time where if we want to enter into his house, we've got to take off our muddy boots. God won't let muddy boots in his house. So his love was to call us when we were in a state of ignorance and sin. But having called us, he expects a response. And if he doesn't get that response, his sin doesn't, sorry, his love doesn't abide with us indiscriminately. The other point that is made in Mr. Yancey's book that we want to touch on finally is this that in a very subtle way, he makes a distinction between a person and their behaviour. So he will never go to the extent, for example, of condemning a person. He will distinguish between the person and their behaviour. So he will say things like, for example, um, uh, he gives some examples. Uh, he says, there were people who... Um, who, who uh, God called, people who had committed adultery, people who had committed murder, and God accepted them. And he makes the claim that Christ didn't distinguish between a person and their behaviour. Neither did the Apostle Paul. When a member of the church in Corinth committed gross immorality, um, you know, Paul didn't target the person. Well, let's see what the Bible says about this. And the sort of passages that are used to support this idea of, of making a distinction between a person and their behaviour is Mark chapter 2. When the scribes and Pharisees saw Jesus eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? And so what the author of that book would say is, well, clearly Christ didn't have an issue with sinners. But once again, let's read around that verse. Jesus responded to the scribes and Pharisees in the following verses, in the following verse, and said, When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Note that I came to call sinners to repentance. So these people that I'm sitting in the midst of, yes, I recognise that they were sinners. I'm, on, I'm not accepting their behaviour as, as it is. I'm trying to change them. And you, scribes and Pharisees, you're not willing to accept my call. You see yourselves as already righteous and so you're rejecting my call, whereas these people have accepted it. It might be worth noting that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul doesn't distinguish between behaviour and the person. There was a person in the, in the meeting at Corinth who had committed gross immorality. And Paul charges the, the members of that community and he says, 
put away from yourselves that wicked person. He tied together the person and their behaviour. So far we've looked at the popular teachings on the subject of forgiveness and grace, in particular by looking at Philip Yancey's book. We'd like to make the point that we don't take pleasure in in criticising anyone's writings, but we do it to warn you that the teachings of in such books as What's So Amazing About Grace are toxic and if they are followed, they will rob a person of eternal life. So we say it not to make a personal um, dig at Mr Yancey but to draw to your attention that the teachings such as that are inconsistent with the Bible. Well, we too, like Mr Yancey, think that God's grace and God's forgiveness is amazing, but for different reasons. And now we want to have a look at what those reasons are. So for the remainder of tonight, we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about forgiveness. As we've already indicated, there is a connection between this subject and with the character of God. God could forgive in in an instant, as we said, but he doesn't because of what what he is. And to forgive unconditionally would be to deny himself, and that's an impossibility. So it's not until we understand God that we can understand forgiveness. So where do we go to find the answer of how God forgives? I'd like you to turn, and I don't happen to have this passage on a slide, but I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 2 because we get there the, the short answer, if you like, that we, we want to lead to by the end of this evening. So we're going to, if you like, jump to the conclusion just to give you a succinct answer and then we're going to try and spend some time explaining what that short answer means. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, so the context of this, we alluded to it previously, there was shortly after the, the resurrection of Christ, there was a large group of people who had come together into Jerusalem and they were listening to the Apostle Peter speak. He convicted them that what they had done to Christ just some weeks earlier was murder. And they were convicted in their hearts and they wanted to do something about it. And so we read in verse 37, they they said, Now when they had heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The word remission there basically means to, um, to have your sins forgiven. It's just a, really another word for forgiveness. So what Peter says there is that they needed to do two things. They needed to change their way of life and be baptised. We're going to look at what that means in a little while. That's the short answer of how forgiveness can be obtained. That's what the Bible says. And right throughout the New Testament, the message is consistent. You can check that for yourself. That forgiveness is a matter of doing two things, changing your way of life and or being baptised and changing our way of life. 
Okay. If we ask the question, well, where do we go to, to learn more about forgiveness? Well, the best book in the Bible to go to is the book of Romans. It so happens to be the book that Mr. Yancey um, believes that he's giving an exposition of in, in his writings. And in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul answers the question, how can God righteously forgive sins? Now, you'll recall when we went to Isaiah 45, it said God is a just God and a saviour. And so Paul, if you like, is, is contemplating those two aspects of God's character and saying, but if we are sinners and we constantly you know, fail to live up to God's expectations, how can God righteously forgive that? And Paul explains that wonderfully in the book of Romans and we're going to spend some time there now. Now the book contains some words that may not be familiar to you so before we go to Romans we're going to consider one or two of those words. One of the words that occurs frequently throughout the book of Romans is the word justify. It's an expression which means to pronounce righteous as a verdict given by a judge. Insofar as the person... Insofar as the person is imputed with righteousness, it's not, the person is not really righteous. It has the idea of amnesty or forgiveness. Now, some of us may be familiar with the idea of, of what imputed means. If you happen to have shares in a company, at tax time you might be, um, as a taxpayer, credited with taxes that the company has already paid on your behalf. So from the taxation office, the point of view of the taxation office, you have had tax credits imputed to you. So it's not something that you have paid, the company's done it for you, but from the government's point of view, they impute those credits to you. And that's the idea in, in the Bible. To justify means to impute righteousness, when in fact we cannot be perfectly righteous. The next term is the, the righteousness of God. Oh, sorry, I should. Um, this is an example of how that word is used in Romans. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The next term we want to look at is the word righteousness. Now, it's important to note that it's used in two senses or two ways in the book of Romans. Firstly, it's used to refer to an element of God's character. An example of that is in Romans chapter 3 and verse 5. But it's also used to refer to the arrangement whereby his righteousness is imputed to others. And you'll see examples of that in those um, three quotes we've got there. In... Romans chapter 1, verse 16, which is an example of that second usage, the Apostle Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So why am I putting that quote up there, simply to show that this idea of righteousness, the righteousness of God, that is the arrangement whereby we can be imputed with righteousness or we can receive forgiveness, is a key element of the gospel. 
Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because in there it reveals how we can be forgiven. So this is an important part of the gospel. So let's now go to, um, to the book of Romans and have a, just a, a quick appreciation of the structure of the book so that when we do go to chapter 3 of Romans, you'll have a feel for where we are in the development of thought. The first um, part of chapter 1 is really just an introduction and from chapter 1 verse 16 through to chapter 11 verse 36 he deals with the righteousness of God from various perspectives. Firstly, he says that it was not attained by mankind. So for the first two chapters he he shows how the, the, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, failed to live up to the righteousness of God and he cites all their examples of immorality. And then he goes on to say, well, you Jews, you're, you're no different. You, you say that you keep the law, but you don't. And so you're the same as the Gentiles. So by the time he gets to the end of verse 20, we're going to see in a moment how he draws a conclusion and he says, well, this is, the, this is the state of mankind. You're in need of forgiveness, all of you. And then in the, the following section, chapter 3, verses 21 to 5, verse 21, he talks about the righteousness of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And that's the section that we're going to focus on tonight. But we wanted you to understand where it is in relation to the flow of thought in the, in the book. The remainder of the book of that section is from chapter one, sorry, chapter six, verse one to eight, verse thirty-nine, the righteousness of God as a way of life, and then in relation to Israel. So that hopefully gives us a bit of a mud map of where we are. So as I said, by the time he gets to verse twenty, the apostle has reached a conclusion, and we're going to we're going to come back in a moment to chap, that section, chapter three, verse twenty-one to five, verse twenty-one. But before we do, I want to go to the, to the end of, um, of the book, to chapter 10, to make an important point regarding the righteousness of God. So I do have a slide for this. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. So he's, he's addressing his, his compatriots. He was a member of, the, of um, the Jews. He was of the Jewish nation, the Apostle Paul. And in these three verses here, he's addressing his own people. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God. They're enthusiastic, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. And so the Jews, were, though they were the custodians of the Bible and they were zealous, they became ignorant of God's righteousness. They sought to establish their own righteousness by works. So they decided what should be acceptable to God. And the point that I want you to take away from this is that forgiveness is not granted to the ignorant. Sadly, Paul had to say that they became ignorant of God's righteousness. In other words, they became ignorant of the way in which God will forgive. 
Let's now go to, um, to chapter 3 and pick up on those first few verses, or sorry, the, uh, the first few verses after the, the first section. So you remember, we might actually read from chapter 3, verse 20, which is the, the last verse of that first section where the, the apostle is looking at the, the behaviour of, of Gentiles and Jews and how they all fell short, and then he makes this conclusion in verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in God's sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. That marks the end of that first section. And now he's going to say, but there is another way. There is a way that God's appointed whereby we can be accounted righteous. He's shown that all of mankind, Jews and Gentiles, they've all got a common need. And now Paul reveals the arrangement to satisfy that common need. And if we were to read through verses 23 to 26, what we would notice is, is the frequent use of the terms the righteousness of God and the word justify that we've looked at previously. And we might say that these few verses here from verses 22 to 26 are really the most important verses in the Bible so far as understanding the righteousness of God and how he forgives he says in verse um, 21, but now the righteousness of God, and note that he says, without the law is revealed or manifested. He doesn't mean without regard to law and order. He means, but rather without Jew, a Jewish ceremonial law. He goes on to say that this, this arrangement of God whereby he can forgive was witnessed by the law and the prophets. He's referring to the writings of the Old Testament. So what that's saying is if we want to understand how God forgives, we need to go to the Old Testament to get the basis. And the third point that we want to draw to your attention, he's, and this is the most important point of not just these small groups of verses, but perhaps the most important point of the whole night is in those words that are underlined. He says, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. Now what he's saying is this, God imputes righteousness to people that the recipients might be bearers of it. That's what he means by unto all and upon all them. Now how different is that to the teachings of, say, Mr Yancey, where he says, God forgives and he doesn't care what you do. What the Apostle is saying is here, God forgives, God imputes righteousness to you, but what he wants back in response is, he wants you to be a bearer of that righteousness. That's what he means by upon all them that believe. That's a very powerful statement. So it's not given indiscriminately. God's looking for his righteousness to be seen in our lives. So when God forgives, when he imputes righteousness, he does so with a view to the recipient becoming a bearer of that righteousness. And of course, thereby God is honoured. 
So we might think of it this way, that the righteousness of God incorporates what God is and what he wants us to become. That's really the takeaway point from tonight, that if we want to be forgiven by God, if we want God to impute to us his righteousness and to put a covering over our sins, if you like, what do we have to do? We have to become bearers of his righteousness, of his righteous character. So he goes on in verse 23 of Romans to say, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And it's useful for us to um, to define what sin is. That word sin means to miss the mark. It's as though you're aiming for a target and you can never hit it. The target is, is the character of God in its perfection. And we all fall short of it. Everyone does. So what he's saying here is that so far as God's concerned, sin's not only the things that we do wrong, it's a failure to do what's right. Sin, therefore, as far as God is concerned, is not merely doing that which is wrong, but failing to manifest his glory in our lives. That's what it means when it says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, glory being his character. We can never perfectly manifest it, and so we fall short, we sin. In view of that, it's apparent that we all have a desperate need of forgiveness. What's the basis upon which God extends that forgiveness? Well, that's what he covers in the following verses, in verses 24 to 26. He says there, being justified freely by God's grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, (coughs) excuse me, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. And might I pause there and say, we understand there's a lot of ideas in these verses and we're going to come back and and just unpack it and step through it slowly. But just for now, let's read through it once and we'll come back and look at the individual parts of it. So the second verse again, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, talking about Christ's blood, to declare God's righteousness for the forgiveness of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So let's try and unpack this a little bit. I know it's it's certainly a mouthful. And this is um, not something that if we haven't read the Bible before is easy to comprehend. We accept that. If nothing else, what we're drawing your attention to is that there are moral principles involved in how God forgives sins, how he will um, grant his righteousness or impute his righteousness to others. When you look at those three verses and you take a step back from them, what you note is this that God's process of forgiveness involves him doing something, the Lord Jesus Christ doing something, and us doing something. What did God do? He exercised grace. Grace is to, to be prepared to forgive us even though we fall short of what we aim for. 
What about the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, he was set forth, he was placarded on a cross to be a propitiation. It means, that word simply means a meeting place. So we might, we might paraphrase that second statement to say, God's made Jesus Christ our moral common ground. It's in him that God says, I'm prepared to meet with you. If you can meet me on that moral common ground, then I'm going to accept you. And what do we have to do? We have to have faith in his blood. Now, what does that mean? Well, what we find is that the, the expression of, well, that symbol of blood is used throughout the Bible, and these principles are taught particularly in the Old Testament, that blood is associated with, with sacrifice or of giving up of, of life. And so for a person to, be, to have faith in Christ's blood is another simple way of saying, and the Bible's full of these sort of labels which carry a lot of meaning, it's a way of saying what we have to do is to live like Jesus Christ. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ did something important in his life that's, that we have to emulate. What he did was he put to death those natural inclinations that would lead to sin and he never submitted to them once. And we have to do the same. We, he, like us, he shared our weaknesses and the temptations that you and I experience every day, he did too. Exactly the same, but he never surrendered to those temptations from within. So to have faith in his blood is just another way of saying you have to do what the Lord Jesus Christ did in putting away an old way of thinking and way of life and commence a new way of life. That's what that little expression means. And if you do that, you're going to declare that God is right. And that declaration is not just some sort of one-time act. It's a way of life. When a person makes a choice that, I believe that what Jesus Christ did in his life was right, then we, we emulate that for the duration of our life. And if we do that, God says, you've declared that I am right and that is the basis upon which I am prepared to forgive you. Notice that last statement, to declare at this time his righteousness that he might be just. So it's like this, God's saying the moral principle here is this, you need to acknowledge that what took place in Jesus Christ's life was right and if you if you acknowledge that that was right and that it was right that he he go to the cross in obedience to my will then I'm prepared to call you right that's the moral basis upon which God works we appreciate that that's um, some some challenging concepts to understand but but perhaps the important thing we want you to take away is there is something that God calls upon us to do to receive remission of sins. It has to do with emulating the Lord Jesus Christ. That's perhaps the takeaway message we'd like you to get from that passage. It's a very succinct and succinct passage and filled with powerful ideas. Now, 
The next slide really um, captures all of those points that we've just, just stepped through. But perhaps we could summarise what we've considered tonight this way. Forgiveness is conditional because God cannot deny the principles that he stands for. Sin is falling short of the character of God. Hence all people are in need of forgiveness. Forgiveness can't be earned by works or deeds. It is dependent upon God's grace. God will only impute righteousness or forgive to those who desire to be bearers of his righteousness. So yes, God calls us when we've got muddy boots. But having been called, God is seeking a response which says, I don't like my muddy boots. I don't like my old way of life. I want to take them off and I don't want to put them back on again. And God says, I'm prepared to accept you when you make that declaration in a way of life. What is the basis of God's forgiveness? The declaration of his righteousness in the way I just described. What do I need to do to be forgiven? To identify with the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ in baptism and in a way of life. So you recall that we said we have to have faith in Christ's blood. That little expression means so much. It means that we willingly want to live like Jesus Christ. And what God requires is that we, we demonstrate our willingness to do that by first being baptised. That's a subject all in itself, baptism, but suffice to say, that's what God requires of us. It's like a public declaration of our starting point. And that really brings us to where we, we started. You'll remember we said the short answer of how God forgives. We took it from Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, where it said, Repent and be baptised for the remission of sins. So we'd like to leave you with this hope, and that is, therefore, being justified by faith, we can have peace with God. We'll no longer be afraid of God or ashamed of our way of life. We have peace with God through Christ by following his example. And by him, we have access by faith into God's grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Thank you. Thank you.